Attention, you're listening to the Todd Huff Radio Show, America's home for conservative, not bitter talk radio. Be advised that the content of this program has been documented to prevent and even cure liberalism, and listening may cause you to lean to the right. Here's your conservative, but not bitter host, Todd Huff. Conservative, not bitter indeed, my friends. You've tuned in here to America's Home for Conservative, Not Bitter Talk. I'm your host, Todd Huff. It is a pleasure to be here. Yesterday, you know that we're out on the road kicking off the Truth Tour. We had a technical glitch, so we had to... Well, I wasn't able to do... I actually did the show. There just was a, a broadcasting issue that we have... Now remedied here as we've been traveling. Good to be here. Email address Todd at ToddHuffShow.com. Let's get right to it today. There's a lot of things that I wanted to talk about yesterday. Going to talk today specifically about this uh, Supreme Court justice hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. also have a guest that we're going to have on next segment that's going to explain to us why we should be concerned about this nominee, which of course we know, right? We know, but he's... He's done a lot of – he's actually written an editorial for the New York Post and brings up some really good points that we need to be fully aware of. I've said from the beginning that the most important thing – you know, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, the ideology of a nominee for the Supreme Court, their personal political preferences should not matter in in an ideal world. We don't live – in that ideal world. We also have lived through enough of American history, even recent history, to know to know that the radical left uses opportunities like this, uses opportunities like this to push their political agenda. In fact, in fact, the radical left, this I think is the preferred way, the preferred method of the radical left. It allows them to actually avoid the political process where many times they get walloped, absolutely walloped um, when they have referendums. I'm reminded of same-sex marriage, how many times that lost during the referendum process across the various states until suddenly the same justices that cannot find the Second Amendment – they cannot find the right to keep and bear arms in the Constitution. Who, the same justices, by the way, who can find the right to an abortion now also found the right to uh, marry someone of the same gender. That we, We've seen this play out, is my point. We see that this is a preferred strategy. And so we should be immediately on guard to begin with um, about the intentions of the radical left. While also, I try to be fair. You know I'm conservative. I'm not bitter. But these ideas, these principles matter. And to act like the left has never done this before. Remember, Stephen Breyer's the one who said, he said that it's okay to cite foreign law and opinions, which to which I say we're a half step away from citing Harry Potter novels at this particular point. But this is how they do it. It's insidious. It's everywhere we look. And on top of that, On top of that problem, we've also got the reality that this nominee, which 
in one sense, just you saw Marsha Blackburn's exchange with uh, the uh, Katanji Brown Jackson on what a woman is. Like, on, on, in one sense, I find myself thinking, what on earth are we talking about? This is a hearing for the Supreme Court, uh, a vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And we're talking about something. I've got a 12, 10, and 8-year-old. All, all of my children can explain to you some level of definition as to what a male or a female, what a man or a woman actually is. But now we have someone who's waiting to get to the highest court who can't even do that. So now you begin to think, what is their ability? What is this? What is her ability to use good judgment and just basic common sense? I mean, are we to the point? Are we to the point to where we're going to not have opinions on on anything? For example, if we say if she was asked what nation lies directly to our south that shares our southern border, would she say I'm not a geographer? I mean, we've gotten to the point to where this passes for the radical left, for the media, for the talking heads as some sort of a, I guess, in-depth analysis of realizing what her lane is, when in reality, we're actually thinking about moving towards nominating someone who doesn't even have the basis, a basic ability to define what a woman is, which of course is ironic because Biden told told us he's going to nominate a black woman for the Supreme Court, to which this nominee can't even define what that is. It's It's remarkable to think about. But here's that exchange and some of the nonsense that we've been subjected to the past few days during this hearing. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can Pause. I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No. That was the yeah. question. I can't. You she can't? That's bizarre. N- not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. Of- not a biologist. Not a biologist. What in the world are we talking about here? She's not- <laughs> And we'll talk about this with our, with our guest as well. So I think... And we're going to take an early break so we can squeeze in as much from, from John Schweppe, our guest, um, as, as possible. Um, he, by the way, is the director of policy and government affairs. We've had him on uh, the television program as well in the past, and he holds that position at the American Principles Project. And he's going to go through some of these things and talk about some of the concerns. But I think what we've seen on display, and yes, there's been some political grandstanding and some theatrics, and I think part of that is necessary and and important um, to really frame because this is, I mean, folks, eyes are on this. I mean, this is one of the only times people are going to watch what happens in the U.S. Senate. So all eyes are on this, and it's important to differentiate that we have two diametrically opposed worldviews out there. One of them is based in reason and common sense and judgment uh, and truth. The other is based in utter fantasy to where they can't even identify and define what a woman is. I mean, bizarre stuff, right? Not only that, she wouldn't even tell Ted Cruz that he could not identify as an Asian man. I mean, crazy, ridiculous stuff happening right before our eyes. So, that's kind of what's happening. I had a lot more We said a lot more yesterday, but we had the tech problem. That being said, going to take a time out. When we come back, I want to talk with John Schweppe. He's going to explain to us why we should be concerned 
the real threat, the real dangers with this nominee, including the people who endorse her, which should get the attention of everybody who cares about the Constitution, this country, and conservative constitutional principles. We'll do that on the other side of the break, my friends. Sit tight. You're listening to Conservative Not Better Talk. I am your host, Todd Huff, back here in just a minute. All right, welcome back, my friends. So, as I shared before the break, we have a guest this segment. He's going to talk with us about really the risk, the dangers of this particular nominee to the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown-Jackson. He's the Director of Policy and Government Affairs, the American Principles Project. I'd like to welcome to the program John Schweppe. John, how are you today, sir? Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Todd. It's my pleasure. You've been on the TV show before. Appreciate what you do. Let's just get right to it. You've written this piece here this op-ed for the New York Post, and something you wrote, and I just want to jump right into it, you said that Katanji Brown-Jackson is not going to be a modern Sandra Day O'Connor. She is a woke Trojan horse, as the preponderance of evidence suggests. Maybe elaborate on that. What are we dealing with here with this particular nominee? Sure. Well, I think, I think first of all, your viewers, your listeners, you know, need to understand that the Democrats and the media are doing everything they can to portray her as this mainstream nominee. Uh, they tried to, you know, basically dodge as many questions as they could during this hearing. Um, but the Republican senators were pretty consistent in trying to get to the heart of her judicial philosophy, really understanding what makes her tick. And, you know, if you look at uh, hearings we've had with recent uh, justices, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, you know, uh, Neil Gorsuch, that was a part of those those hearings as well, and you learned from those those justices, uh, judges at the time, that you know they were originalists. They adhered to original public meaning. Uh, what Congress said at the time is what it, what the law means, or what the founders said, and they weren't really able to get at that with Katanji uh, Brown Jackson. And the reason for that, as I'm about to explain, is that uh, she is a political activist. She's not a, a judge, and I mean she has a long career as a judge. She's done all of this, but her judgments, her rulings are really guided by a political philosophy, which is woke progressivism. And so what we were able to find and what other groups and certainly a lot of the senators were able to find is that, you know, in her record, uh, she's been really soft on crime to the point of being an activist. There's, there's lots of examples. Uh, Josh Hawley brought up, you know, sex crimes, but there's lots of examples where she went dramatically under the uh, minimum sentence that was recommended. Uh, for seriously, you know, bad criminal offenders. We're not talking drug crimes. We're talking, uh, you know, some really bad stuff. That's part of it. The other part of it is that she's been very much active in the whole 1619 Project stuff. She uh, mm-hmm. has publicly praised Nicole Hannah-Jones, the architect of that. Um, she's been supportive of critical race theory, even though during the hearing she claimed to really not know what it is. Uh, she has public comments to the contrary. <laughs> You know, her school that she sits on the board mm-hmm. of uh, is teaching, you know, toddlers, uh, anti-racist baby and all sorts of, you know, all these different uh, books and tracks. And so this is, you know, what you expect now from the woke left, maybe not from somebody who you would want to be a, uh, a justice on the Supreme Court. And then there's the fact, and I think this, you know, I got to this in the piece, that all of the left groups, the far left groups, the crazy groups, 
are behind her 100%. One of the most significant ones, Demand Justice, that's a group that uh, made a lot of headlines last year in D.C. Uh, calling for expanding the court. Um, one of their founders, uh, or at least principals, uh, recently made headlines when he was on The View because he said that uh, the Constitution is trash. Mm. <laughs> uh, this is a group that is certainly not uh, what you would say as a pro-Constitution group. Um, they were advocating for her well before the Biden administration even nominated her. Mm-hmm. She was their pick from all from the entire, uh, you know, the bench. So, so, so was she the uh, top choice of a lot of these radical groups? Yes, yes. So, the number so one. We, we, yeah, she was she was expected, actually, um, by by a lot of us who were doing research into this. You know, we looked at, at all of their possible choices. Obviously, Biden limited his uh, selection to yes. an African-American female, right? So, so we were looking at, you know, five or six potential picks. And there were several that were qualified. Um, but Ketanji Brown-Jackson seemed to have, you know, the leg up because all these groups were – publicly advocating for her to be the pick and you know actually to be fair it's a little bit reminiscent of how a lot of conservative groups out here were you know clamoring for uh, amy coney barrett yes. right and mm-hmm. we actually saw that during the kavanaugh nam- nomination before that and then also after so um so you know she was a pr- the preferred pick and uh and and now you know that she's in there uh, asking you know being asked all these questions uh, she, she's just not answering any of them, so, and and it's smart on her part because she she can't reveal these answers because she's you know pretty far out there. That's right, and I've said on this program there's a, there's a game within the game here. Republicans are they are doing some politicking. They are trying to make this about they they know they have eyes on this. This is an election year, all that stuff. But the Democrats are also playing a game here too. They're delaying. They're trying to prevent her from actually having to answer some of these questions. Uh, one of the uh, senators said that. Uh, she was effectively filibustering. I think that might have been Lindsey Graham. Uh, I, a question here. I, I want just a quick answer to this because I don't want to get bogged down. I, I've talked about on this program a piece written by Andrew McCarthy, who I have a lot of respect for at National Review. He actually said that Josh Hawley was pretty uh, – was not really correct in his assessment that she was uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson really too far outside of – the normal scope of, of sentencing. Are, are you saying that his assessment of that is incorrect? Yeah. Yeah. We would argue it's incorrect, but I will say it's reflective of um, where a lot of elites are out here. So it's not necessarily both on the left and the right. There's this huge criminal justice reform push mm-hmm. to uh, lower sentences. And I think that's what he's hinting at. In a lot. Okay. Okay. So, I've said on this program, I think I even said in the opening segment, that the real we first of all, we know when a Democrat and in today's Democrat Party is is the president, they're going to nominate someone who is going to have these political ideas. I in, in large part, right? So connect mm-hmm. the, the real danger though is will this nominee see this as an opportunity to take those ideas and use her position to basically become a judicial activist and push those things into law, even when they really aren't the law. So connect the dots there. What, what makes, what makes her cross that threshold, I guess? Well, I think she did a good job at trying not to indicate that for sure in the testimony. Right. So, you know, it's hard to say for sure that she's a lockstep vote on, you know, abortion or on transgenderism or any of these things. But again, this is just kind of how DC works. These groups would not support her if they didn't think she was right. Like these uh, yeah, are the exactly. farthest left wing groups, 
And so that's where I, I think you really have to follow the money. And, uh, and a lot of, there's a lot of left-wing money going into her nomination. Uh, she would be a disappointment to them in a big way if suddenly she did become, you know, a Sandra Day O'Connor moderate. Uh, and, and that's just, I, I think it's, it's um, a little naive, I think, for some folks who, who certainly are saying that uh, to expect her to be this, this when, when it's obvious that she's based That's on right. her record and based on who supports her, who she is. That's right. And I don't want to come across as saying, I don't think she is that. I'm just trying to say for, for the sure. people who don't know, like why, why is John making this leap? And your mm-hmm. point, I mean, part of your point sounds like is this, we don't even know because they've, they've played some games here. They've maybe stonewalled. They've, you know, Cory Booker's questioning the other day was outrageous to me. I don't want to get into that, but just the, the praise he was lavishing upon. I mean, it was really awkward to me. Um, but they do have a they, the left, has a track record of this. And your point is the most radical progressive groups in America have her as their number one choice. Let's think about why that would be the case. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. And then also, you know, we did glean, I would say, some tells from the testimony, too. She couldn't define what a woman is. That's, That's right. because she with the far left LGBT groups on that. Uh, she for Ben Sass, who was trying to get her to agree with him. She couldn't condemn cancel culture or students yelling to prevent speakers from talking at an event. I mean, those types of things. That's a signal to her far left base that she's with them. And, you know, and I think the Republican senators understand that, which is why I kind of expect a closer vote than people expected a week ago. What, what do you think? I mean, she gets she gets confirmed. I mean, is it close? Is there any chance she doesn't get confirmed? What's that look like to you? I think it's likely she gets confirmed unless Joe Manchin decides to become a Republican tomorrow. Okay. Um, but 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 I do think it's looking like, a you know, we might lose Susan Collins. We might lose Lisa Murkowski. Maybe Mitt Romney decides mm-hmm. to. Mitt Romney, but but it's probably something like 48 Republicans voting no. And uh, look, I know that's frustrating for the base. Like, why couldn't we stop this all the way? Well, we did lose an election in that's 2020 right. with the with the Senate, right? So, um, but I think you know, as long as we're really raising uh, Republicans to fight these types of nominees, I think it's it's a good thing for the future. Well, John, I know you've got to run. I appreciate very much you sharing your insights here. That's John Schweppe. He is the Director of Policy and Government Affairs for the American Principles Project. John, thanks for joining us, sir. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Folks, quick time out back here in just a minute. All right, welcome back, my friends. This is something we've not done, I don't think ever. We've had two, had a guest last segment. Again, thanks to John Schweppe from the American Principles Project talking about this nominee and why should we should be concerned. I, I reached out earlier in the week um, to our next guest, a friend of mine. A friend of mine, He's you've heard him on this program. Uh, they're a, an advertiser on this show, Greg Hubler from Greg Hubler Automotive Group and got dealerships all around central Indiana. But I wanted to reach out to Greg because one of the things that I've seen popping up in the news lately – um, is some more supply problems pertaining to global chip production, which affects a lot of things, including including automobiles and automobile sales. So, Greg, welcome to the program, sir. How are you? Hey, doing wonderful, Todd. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. So, I guess summarize that this has been a a long suffering journey for you and others in the industry. 
um, trying to get supply, which has a lot of things that factor into that, certainly. But one of these things is, of course, the production of these chips that seem to go in into everything. Is this issue getting better? Has it ever gotten better? Is it is it getting worse? Kind of explain to our listeners where we stand uh, with the chip production as it pertains to you know moving product to market. So it's a hard question to answer, Todd, because every day is a, is a new day with new uh, sets of circumstances. So in general, the plants that produce 80% of the chips to the automotive industry uh, in the United States, um, it, it is back up and running. And for the listeners that don't know, it actually was involved in an earthquake and burnt down. Uh, I guess it would be two years ago. And where where's uh, it? Yeah, it was in Taiwan. Okay. And so, so the plant, like, although it's come back up and, you know, potentially it's full capacity and, and running, there's all the other downstream effects that we're faced with in every industry, whether it's shipping, additional shutdowns, um, you know, just any logistical issue that seems to pop up every other day that we, we see on the news. So to answer your question, um, I, I do believe there's some headway with production, but the other logistics involved are, are, are just a crapshoot every, every day, you know, and additionally, um, as we order vehicles, there are constraints and this isn't specific to any one brand, but there are several hundred types of chips within a vehicle. And so um, there's an aging process involved with these chips, which causes complications and causes constraints as we're building vehicles. And, you know, somebody wants to have a certain equipment package on a vehicle that includes heated seats, for example, you might not be able to get heated seats in your car because we have to be very strategic in how the chips are prioritized. So it's very, very complex. It's a moving target every day. And people ask me all the time, hey, are things better? And we'll, in some segments, yes, they are. In others, they, they seem to get worse, you know. So it's, it's a really hard question to answer. And, and I, I, I just smile and take, <laughs> take things day by day, and that's all we can do in any industry. That's right. And, and the reality is is that – and I don't want to pull you into, in, into politics. You can say whatever you, you want to say, but one of the realities are that – when you look at some of the issues we faced um, on a on a global supply uh, chain scale, regardless of the product chips in this particular example, when you look at that, um, there's reasons that we got to these problems that were just kind of the natural course of say dealing with COVID. But we also have the reality that some of these decisions, some of these regulations, some of these, you know, choices to, you said Taiwan was where, um, you know, the, one of the largest or the largest factories were. And I, I immediately think of China and, and, and Taiwan and what would happen if, if China decided to do to Taiwan, what Russia decided to do in, in Ukraine. And so there's all these factors um, that are going into it, but, but how big of a factor is some of the regulation and, and just decisions coming from government um, as it pertains to, to these issues? 
So my that, that's a great question, Todd. And I've been talking about this more recently because there's a huge emphasis today on EV vehicles and lots of conversation around it and CAFE standards and, and everything else. So my, my concern is let's just say the chip thing works itself out in the next, you know, 12 months or so as we're looking to produce more and more EV vehicles, these units require more semiconductor chips if we're looking at, you know, a, a Silverado to the new electric Silverado. The, the EV Silverado is going to require 50 or 75% more chips. So the demand for these products are going to be greater. So in theory, that's how the government operates many times and in reality they they don't quite understand it's not as simple as is well we'll just get some more widgets and build mm -hmm. some more vehicles it's simply not the case and you know my concern is if we're out of the woods with the the chip deal um and things are normal-ish we we can't sustain you know the 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 build out for the, the new EV thing that's, that's around the corner. And maybe in time, four, five, six, seven years, we have the production and the control here in the U.S. to, to be able to pivot when these types of things happen. But right now, we, we just don't. Well, and, and you have, you, I don't know if you specifically said this, but you, you have different uh, manufacturers that you, that you work with. So I don't necessarily want you, you can to say what they're, which, which ones are telling you what information, but what sorts of things are you hearing from them? I mean, are we looking at, are they trying to find ways to source these domestically? Is that way too expensive? Is that way too far from being a reality? Are we still getting most of these from China? I mean, wh where are these coming from? What's the direction that it looks like it's heading as far as where the supply of these things come from in the future? Ultimately, I think I think everybody wants to be in the driver's seat, and we got burned so badly that yes, that's that's the the focus is try and bring the production back home. But it's not as simple as hey, we're going to have a plant open in two months. I mean, I've, I've heard the equipment for a single plant is is literally north of a billion dollars, and then we wow. have you know all sorts of training and labor issues that we've got to you know account for for each plant individually plus the aging of the, the chips themselves. So it's, you know, maybe in 24 to 36 months or something, maybe, maybe you get a plan up and running and it makes an impact, a positive impact on, you know, production here in the U.S. But it's just not as simple as waving a magic wand and, right. and have, having a plan up and running. Well, and, and not only that, if you're thinking about starting a plant, I think that's a good idea. There's demand for having U.S. production of these things. You got to think, what are these investors thinking with the state of the economy and interest rates and how much they want to come out of pocket with capital to, uh, to invest in these things? I mean, how long does it take to bring product to market? Are we going to be facing another recession in that amount of time? I mean, all sorts of factors to deal with, right? Yeah, not, not to mention like when we sign, not we, but when a manufacturer signs contracts with supplier, I mean, they're legally bound to say, hey, maybe I'm going to use you exclusively for the next five years. So, I mean, the list just goes on and on, and I'm optimistic one way or another we'll sort this out in time. But, you know, it's just kind of like the calm of the perfect storm of, you know, with, with the chip thing specifically, you got an earthquake that caused a fire right after a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just it's, the list is endless. You know, it's like a eight-way gut punch, tragically. 
Yeah, and that's and that's what we're dealing with. And as as entrepreneurs, as I know you're an entrepreneur, you're growing, and you know you've opened new dealerships and so forth here in the past couple of years. I mean, you have to have that mentality, but at the same time, we have to be realistic, as as I know you are too, to say, hey, these are these are real problems. Like we have to think, we have to think more strategically about this. We just can't wake up one day and say, huh, we can't get cars to market or whatever the product is. I just I know that these were in cars, which is why I wanted to talk with you. We just can't do that. There has to be uh, more – we have to be more proactive. We have to be more forward-thinking in general. And and some of those realities, from my perspective, is what the government is is doing and the forces they're placing on the market, um, which only complicates matters further. So anything you'd add in conclusion, Greg, before I let you go here, my friend? Uh, yeah, our, our minds are, uh, uh, like, like-minded on that. I mean, at the end of the day, when, when this journey started and, you know, cafe standards, which for those of you who don't know, it's corporate average fuel economy is what that stands for. So we're at 32 miles to the gallon today. And the push is, I believe 52 miles to the gallon in five years. And, wow. uh, you know, it's a, it's quite a journey to get there. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not biased EV versus combustion vehicles. I just want to, you know, serve the public and, right. and meet the demands there. So I'm rooting for a win all around. <laughs> well, Greg, I appreciate uh, you coming on and kind of talking about that. This, I saw this earlier in the week. It's a story I think from, from Monday. And I reached out and said, Hey, if we've got time later in this week, I'd like to talk about this. So I'm glad that you jumped on here and kind of just from a, uh, someone who's affected by this directly in your business to share with folks kind of some of these factors because sometimes we don't we don't see that we just see hey there's not as much inventory on a lot or it takes longer to get a car or whatever and I wanted to put some this is this is kitchen table issues right I mean this is this is I think where the rubber meets the road so thanks for sharing that with us today. Thanks for having me, Todd. Appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Greg Hubler from Greg Hubler Auto Group. Got to take a quick time out, my friend. Sit tight back here in just here we go, just a minute. Welcome back, my friends. You know, I was, as we wrapped up that last segment, I was talking to Greg, which again, thanks, Greg, for coming on and, and just sharing. I, look, I just want, it's something that I wanted to get to. There's a lot of news out there, but I wanted to, to touch on it and talk about the issue because I wanted, you hear the left talking about the economy as though it's just this something that just has a mind of its own. And, and to some degree that is that is correct. I don't. I'm not saying that whoever's in president or whoever's in the office of the president is pulling strings left and right to make every little detail work out the way that they think it should. That's just not the way that it works. However, I will add that it's the way that the radical left acts like it should work. They think that they should be overseeing everything. And the truth is, when they get out of the way, government's not responsible for every problem. I want to be clear on this. I mean, look, as a conservative, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of opinions about the government that are not um, that are not good. They're not efficient. They don't know what they're doing. They try to put their fingers in everything. Everything costs more. They provide. I mean, they, they don't add anything. They're taking money out of the economy. 
and then trying to put it back in, which of course there's going to be less of it when that happens. They create inflationary pressures uh, by some of their actions. You have a president in office like Joe Biden. Those things absolutely, folks, absolutely. If you're an investor and you have a president that embraces the ideology of the radical left, not, he he's not directly saying you can't open this factory, but he it makes you think about it differently than someone like Trump who's out there talking about growing the economy, who's out there with the history of creating enough optimism. That's really what the president should be doing is, is giving businesses assurances that they're not going to be any more of a hindrance to their ability to create profits, drive revenues, bring products and services to market than is absolutely positively necessary. And that doesn't happen when the radical left is in charge. That makes everybody hold their breath. <laughs> what are they going to make me do now? What are they going to force me to pay for? How many weeks of this are they going to make me provide um, to somebody? How many? How much red tape am I going to have to get into to, to start a factory to produce these chips? I mean, this goes on and on and on and on. What environmental consideration should I have in mind when I think about producing chips? Because that's, you know, we're looking at things that um, you're not supposed to just, th- you know, throw this waste into the landfill. A lot of this, a lot, I mean, you can't throw a television, for example. You're not supposed to throw a television into the trash or what have you. You're supposed to dispose of these things differently. And when you're doing a mass factory scale production sort of thing, you have a lot of things to consider, a lot of things. And because just the sheer volume, what's the investment? How long am I going to take to get the return on my investment? What's the economy going to look like after two more years of these radical lunatics running the show? Because after the past 13 or 14 months, it's taken an absolute nosedive. Can't even afford to drive myself to work anymore, right? I mean, this is, this is where we are. And Greg, Greg said to me after the break that the CAFE standards, which are the fuel economy standards for automobiles, the CAFE standards, in order to keep up with the demands that the government standards have created on automobiles, it is going to cost every manufacturer, and, and Greg didn't have the exact count, but it's it's somewhere around 30. So manufacturer of an automobile, Ford, Chevy, Toyota, whatever. He says it's going to it's going to cost them 1 billion dollars with the B every year ad infinitum forever to meet to keep up with the demands of the cafe standards. So you have all my my point in bringing this up and again, as you think about what you want to what I want to talk about or as I think about what I want to talk about and share with you. There's so many things vying for our attention. But one of these things out there is that the the policies and actions and mentality of the left have no, you know, negative impact on the economy. The heck it doesn't. Here's one perfect example. Right? They're not responsible for every shortage and supply chain problem. I'm not saying that. But they are responsible I think in large part because COVID did have it in and of itself, just COVID itself running its course had an impact. 
But most of the impact that COVID had as it pertains to the economy was what we decided, what governments decided to do around the world with lockdowns and shutdowns and essential workers and all this sort of gibberish and and so forth, which, by the way, in hindsight, did absolutely nothing, did absolutely nothing, um, according to a Johns Hopkins survey, according to science, not, I don't mean Dr. Fauci, I mean science, the real science, the real science has stood up and has been acknowledged and said there was no significant, meaningful, statistically relevant impact on the spread of the disease, you know, limiting it by what the government did. And yet we have all these other factors. So in reality, what that means is government made it worse. And government makes so much of everything that it touches worse. And again, they're not to be blamed for every reason, for every reason um, that there's problems with, say, chips, these electronic chips that go into vehicles and lots of other things, for example. But they have a lot of metaphorical blood on their fingers here when it comes to who's responsible for some, for at least some of it. Or I dare, dare I say most, I, I would say most of it. I think most of it is is their fault, directly because of regulations, indirectly because of taxes. Well, that'd be directly as well. But indirectly due to, I should say, just the mentality, the, the, the hesitation it puts in the minds of people who are trying to move to market with something or to try to do something in a more innovative fashion. It creates in their minds a hesitation to pull the trigger. Maybe I shouldn't invest in this factory. Maybe we should back off of production. I don't know what this guy's going to do to the economy in the next six months. Are there going to be more shutdowns, more mask mandates, vaccine mandates? Am I going to have people quitting left and right because they refuse to comply? I mean, those things are all in the minds. Believe me, business owners are not idiots. Many of you are. Not idiots. Many of you are business owners. So you're, you're not idiots, right? So this idea, this idea that there's no impact by the choices of government, not just on the economy, but in in so many other aspects. I just wanted to get to that this week because it was relevant and timely, and I've got to be timely here too. Take a quick time out back here in just a minute. All right, my friends. Well, that was a action-packed program. A lot going on here behind the scenes. Enjoyed speaking both with John Schweppe of the American Principles Project, also with my friend Greg Hubler of Greg Hubler Automotive Group. There's lots of things that we got to stay on top of, abreast of, as we (laughs) move down this path that the radical left is taking us. So Supreme Court Justice nomination process is of course important as is the economy and the impact that the government in particular the radical left has on the economy and this civilization i gotta go folks scg tomorrow take care